Oh, before we start. Joe, <laughs> before we start, what? Before we actually start, I'm going to leave a pause after you introduce me, just so you know. Okay, fine. <laughs> Don't put that in the record either. This podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language. Hello and welcome to TV DNA, The Woman in the Wall, Episode 5, Ex Gratia, and Episode 6, A Little Resurrection. There will be spoilers ahead for those episodes, so if you haven't yet watched the end of The Woman in the Wall, why not go back, listen to that, and then come and listen to us. Go and watch that, and then come back and listen to us. <laughs> well, you know what they say about a watched pot. The kettle calls it black, Grace Chapman. Oh, sorry, I died there for a moment, but I'm back now. <laughs> I also forgot to say, this is this is one of the best intros I've done yet. My name is Adam Hemming. Hello. Welcome to TV DNA. <laughs> What's wrong with us today? Oh, this is going to be a good record. I can feel it. It's going to be very logical. We're not going to go on tangents at all. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, let's get into it then, because I think these last two episodes were pretty special and overall I think this is a fantastic series yeah I agree I a brilliant brilliant series so unusual so brilliantly put together the visuals are stunning I did find episode five a little filler I don't know how many times we had to hear that the children were sold and then they were trafficked (laughs) I think there were a few times when characters learnt that and I was like, but we know that you don't need to tell us again. So there was episode five, I felt was just a, a tiny bit of a filler. But I mean, it's a very minor criticism on what genuinely was a really it sounds weird to call it beautiful. But in many ways, it was a very beautiful show, I think. I agree. It was. I think it is a really beautiful show. I think Catherine, my wife, said after watching the finale that she felt that last episode was rushed a bit. I've watched it twice and I think. Episode five, they get through a lot of the plot and a lot of the mysteries resolved. It, it allows episode six, I think, to take its, I felt it took its time with it, its storytelling and only gave us really what we needed to know. Yeah, I think there were a few moments where I was like, oh, bloody hell, we're here. Okay. I mean, look, you know, six hours of telly to get pacing absolutely spot on through the whole is is a nightmare. So I, I really, you know, these are minor quibbles, I think, on on what has been, I think, probably definitely the most memorable TV show I've seen in a while. I wanted to talk about, I don't think we've talked about the opening credits yet in these episodes. And I do love my opening credits. Oh, you love your opening credits. I mean, problem here is that I always skip them. So I don't know how useful I'm going to be. I know, I was watching the finale with Catherine and she skipped it. And I was like, what are you doing? These are brilliant. I mean, it's a great, great tune. Really vivid colours, the sort of religious iconography, and then you get all these newspaper headlines. I think they're really beautifully put together. So well done, credits team. We love credits team. Shout out. Yeah, credit where it's due. <laughs> Let's get into this one then. So again, episode five picks up straight after the end of episode four, where they're looking at... Coleman's death certificate and they deduce from this that maybe Alice is alive too so a bit of renewed hope for Lorna but the key thing is that Coleman reveals that he was born in a mother and baby home he says he doesn't talk about it much 
And there's this really sweet and supportive moment from Lorna where she's just she just says, it's okay. And I just love this. This was the connection between Lorna and Coleman and how this developed over the two episodes, I thought was beautiful. But he says, maybe we could find out what happened to your daughter. And it feels like there's finally someone on Lorna's side. I just wrote down, not unlikely allies, that's too strong a word, but definitely sort of coming together and being allies in this and going rogue together. I think some of the most like beautiful moments of the show was when Coleman and Lorna have been having conversations almost as if he's talking to his mother and she's talking to her child. And it's just been so clever or whenever that's happened has been it's almost been for the, the characters a real important journey to be able to talk to a mother and to talk to a child. I mean, they are kind, kindred spirits in a lot of different ways in the way that they behave. But you're absolutely right. I think it was so beautiful when they're talking on the phone and they're almost role playing for each other. I think at that point, Lorna's ready to give up the search for Agnes. And she's asking Coleman whether he loved his adopted mother and how he feels about his birth mother. And he says he thinks about her every day and he will always love her. And it's just exactly what Lorna needed to hear in order to be able to let go. It was, yeah, really, really gorgeous stuff. Yeah, it was definitely a highlight of the last two episodes, that conversation, just stunning. And just Ruth Wilson and Daryl McCormack, just a game, I think, these, these final two episodes. 100%. We then see Massey is called in sick and we hoped for a Massey redemption arc, didn't we, over the end of this series? Do you feel like we got one? Oh, we prayed for it, Adam. We prayed for it. <laughs> we definitely got one. It was wonderful. I mean, also, Massey favours an omelette cup like a jam roly-poly. Yeah, I, I was like, what is it he's cooking? I might try that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The little red book of names, isn't it, that's sort of haunting him and following him around. Yeah, and later on in episode five, he calls Amy Kane in, doesn't he, and shows her her daughter's name. Yeah, we definitely see Massey coming good in lots of different ways, I think. We'll come to those bits. There's a lovely scene where Lorna finds Breeder's death certificate, and they're working out how they can... I, I'm, I'm a bit hazy on this bit. Frank and Joyce, I think, are Breeders' adopted parents. Yeah. And they have an address for them on the back of an envelope. And they know about the Sacred Heart Church. And they're putting these things together. And there's a moment where uh, I think Lorna says to Coleman, very good work, Columbo. Which is a really nice callback to that first time we meet Coleman with his mum watching Columbo. Of course, I hadn't spotted that callbacks. But something I love about series coming to an end is callbacks. And there was lots of them actually kind of peppered throughout this. But I think she says, well, you can't throw a stone without hitting a sacred heart church around here. And he says something like, but how many of them are close to Mill Road or wherever it was, Frank? So that's him sort of making the connection there. But yeah, I enjoyed this. And um, them in the car was so good. I mean, <laughs> strong mints sweets and a was it a can of pop she was drinking yeah. and hanging out of the window like a dog yeah. really brilliant I mean she, there's a key conversation where he asks when did you last sleep she's like what day is it Wednesday about a week ago and obviously that becomes more important 
in episode six when we find out what happened to Aoife Cassidy. And she's been awake for a week, so it's no wonder she's pretty wired and in need of snacks. I mean, can you imagine? I need eight hours a night, Adam, or I'm a monster. <laughs> <laughs> this would be, I mean, what are the Trebidor strong mints or whatever she was having? <laughs> I mean, the other day I had to have an afternoon nap to get through the day. Adam, I love an afternoon nap. <laughs> Cheeky 20 minutes. So it's very clear health. But this is the tangent we were talking about. <laughs> Let's talk about Neve and uh, I thought it was her friend at first. I think it's her sister, Anna. She was kind of a new character, wasn't she, for us, just thrown in at the end there. But she's been summoned by James Coyle. Her uh, sister jokes that it might be a proposal and Neve suspects it will be bad news. But it turns out the state is recognising the Kilkenure convent as a laundry. And that what, what they need to happen is these letters need to be signed as soon as possible. But it was some sweet stuff about their mother was in the laundry and they didn't know that until she passed. Not even her father knew that was the shame that she carried. So they're getting some closure now, they think. Mm-hmm. James Coyle. I mean, I was like, James Coyle has come good. Oh, lush, because we we didn't we suspected him, didn't we? And then there was a tiny glance at the letter from him, like the smallest little flicker in his eyes, and I was like, oh no. Yeah, I definitely knew when he said, you know, we the sooner we get these letters signed, the better. I was like, okay, there's a time pressure on for him for some reason, and I'm sure it's not a good one. Like, oh, you, let me grab you the pen. <laughs> Some of the best comedy moments, I thought, were these scenes between Massey and Skelly. This particular one that came up next, where he, he says, do you ever get tired of being useless? And Skelly's yeah. like, oh, I'm sorry, boss. <laughs> oh, no. Put the kettle on, though. Yeah. But yeah, Massey's getting on, on the case. <laughs> and then we get the line a bit later on about the, you know, the saying about a watched kettle, a watched pot or whatever, and the kettle calling it black. Loved that. Oh, well, that really was wonderful. Massive, just like, for God's sake. <laughs> but they do track down Breeder, and Breeder initially is quite reluctant to talk to them. There's, like, again, a bit of comedy of come and saying, oh, I'll show them my badge and I'll do the talking. Maybe you should just be quiet. And Lorna's straight in there with, your mum died a few weeks ago. I know, right? <laughs> Bedside manner, Lorna. I really liked as well Breeder's, are you my birth mother? Like, the hope and the worry in that question of being like, oh my God, because you must always have in your mind that maybe she might turn up, you know, and then it must just always be like subconsciously somewhere, this thought that she could knock on the door. It's unlikely. But so that moment of like, oh my God, is it happening? Is it now? I thought was really powerful. And then the wonderful line of, because I think Breeder's quite funny, isn't she? She goes, was she funny, my birth mother? And Lorna's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well played out in this series, that whole idea of wanting to find either your child or your parent if you're adopted, but also that fear and worry and the guilt felt by those mothers who had their children taken away and also the longing from them but then the reaction of some of the children and the suggestion that they may not want to know who their mothers were because they felt abandoned and Breeder has been told that her mother wouldn't even feed her and then Lorna tells her your mother Clements didn't abandon you she would never have done that she always loved you so yeah I just feel the way that they've played all of these emotions throughout the series has been spot on I agree I mean it's not 
it's just not a one size fits all, is it? Something like this. Everyone's going to feel differently about this incredibly complicated situation. And I agree. I think they found all the nuances that they needed to find of how people within this fucked up system, the children, the nuns, the mothers, the policemen, how they all feel about it now. And I just think that was, that's really hard to do. They found the grey area perfectly, I think. Yeah. A few more bits of the jigsaw puzzle are put together here as we find out about St Alma's, which is where most of the kids were shipped off to. And they also work out through Frida's age when she was adopted and her death certificate. And they link that to these this money coming in that Father Percy has logged. So it was a £5,000 donation for a roof. There's all these other sort of general repairs and bits and pieces. There's a £10,887 and nine pence donation at one point for upkeep. And I was like, aha, I reckon that's a foreign exchange. I made my note at that point. <laughs> oh, lovely. I didn't spot that at all. But yeah, when you think about like, why would the 9p matter? And side note, £6,700 feels like a lot to spend on him books. <laughs> <laughs> Just flagging. I think that that's interesting that he even logged this money, right, though? Yeah, it is interesting, I guess. They had to keep sort of accounts. But, I mean, we later find out, don't we, that basically what the Edrum Group has been doing is refurbishing all of these old buildings, these old laundries and mother and babies homes to cover up crimes and things that they have done. I mean, obviously there was, as you say, skimming off the top, definitely from those hymn books and other bits and pieces. So I'm sure they've all done quite well out of this human trafficking. Yeah, there was a lovely little sort of chat in the car when... Coleman said this is evidence and she said it's my life and he said it's my life too or something like that another example of that beautiful connection between them yeah and then we're at the old uh clue bay social club yes we've got Neve and Amy Kane and all the others and um Carmel is brought in by a nun she was a friend of Neve's mother and so she's kind of this elderly woman who stayed at the convent essentially and has been looked after by the nuns but yeah, it feels like the nuns have come in as a, she's there to sort of make sure everything happens and everything gets signed. And then she provides some crucial information later on. Lorna finds out about the letters. She gets a phone call. So she goes along and Lorna's essentially trying to persuade them not to sign. She reads the letter. There's a line in there which says, I hereby waive any right of action against the state. So if they sign this and they accept their compensation at this point, they won't be able to do anything about the human trafficking in the future. And that's why Ignatius J. McCullen, or James Coyle, as we know him, wants them to get it signed sooner rather than later. So on the one hand, you've got all of these women who are finally getting some recognition and compensation. On the other hand, you've got Lorna, who's really doesn't want them to sign because she knows there's a bigger story here. And it's a massive uphill battle that Lorna's got to persuade them of, really. She's got to come in. They they know nothing of the journey that she's been on and all the information that she has. And she has to tell them that in not a lot of time. And on the alternative side, they've got money. I mean, some trip to Morocco that I'm very doubtful will happen. And probably closure, really, for them. That's that's the biggest, most valuable thing of all, probably at this point, is a sense that they have received some form of justice. They just don't realise that there is a hell of a lot of more justice that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. No, I don't I don't think you can 
fault the women for wanting to, as you say, have that closure. I think the money is a side thing, definitely. But Lorna says they're trying to silence us in exchange for money. Thomas shows up, doesn't he? We get this the horrendous story of Amy Kane, the revelation of what happened to her. But he says that she was jumping all over him, a married man. And it's revealed that his daddy rang the priest. She had no pain relief. They didn't sew her up. They told her her baby was dead long before she finished giving birth. And the next day they had her working in that laundry at 15 years old. Just horrendous stuff. I mean, no wonder Amy Kane is the way she is, right? Yeah. And I thought the actor who plays Amy Kane was really beautiful in this moment. So much anger, but also really held and in control. Every time you think you've, you've heard like the worst that they do or did, it gets worse again. That's just unbearable. But then we get a good sucker punch, which I did let out a little cheer at this point. The sort of polite applause from the ladies when she when she smacks Thomas one. <laughs> I love that so much. The little claps. And I mean, we talk about the cat pot black line, but slipped, did he? Did he? Did we all see him slip? Yeah, 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 he slipped, he did. <laughs> yeah, there's Massey knowing and, and knowing, right? Knowing and knowing, you're right, yeah. Um, but also Lorna then hugs Amy, which is a big moment for Lorna. She hasn't been physically affectionate with anyone in this series. She's not really received affection and she's not really given it. So this felt massive, like for her to go and comfort somebody else and have that connection. Yeah, really big for Lorna, I thought. She also tells her to sign the letter, doesn't she? I think it is a point of of Lorna recognising that someone actually had it worse than her and, you know, can see that in in Amy's story. Yeah. And it was just like, you know what, actually, Amy... (laughs) Just sign it. Like, Amy doesn't have the energy to go on a massive legal battle. She just needs peace and quiet after that experience. So I thought that was really beautiful. Not only did she tell her to sign it, but Lorna, like, hands her the pen. So really kind of encourages her to do it. And I just thought it was stunning, that little moment. There's a nice moment of why Neve goes into labour. Again, it's really nice that she goes into labour when she's surrounded by all of these these women in this group and that's really the last we see of her in the show there is a, another scene towards the end of episode six with these women which i want to talk about now they go and see fuck off eileen oh <laughs> wish i'd never had to see her again but yeah she's there they kind of all power in isn't he there uh, is ne- it- no, i don't think neve is there it's amy kane and the two older women and massey and they're asking her where the buried bodies of these 87 unaccounted children are and she tries to say, well, you signed an agreement. You can't come in here. And they point out that Massey can. Then she says that nobody will believe these women. And Massey says, we couldn't fathom such evil could exist in this country. It's your last chance to tell us. You will be held to account for this either way. And then we get the wonderful moment of Amy Kane putting her fag out in a cup of tea. It was just <laughs> classic Amy Kane. Classic Amy. Lovely, lovely scene. And yeah, it means that actually I hadn't done the maths of the unaccounted for children. So there is a there is a mass grave somewhere, we think, at this convent, which is horrific. It was a good moment that and Massey saying, you know, you know, you will be held accountable either by me or by the big man. And he basically was like, I'm coming for you, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm kind of jumping to the end a bit here. But how did you feel about the fact that not many of them really got... Well, they haven't yet got their comeuppance, have they? I think it's probably realistic. 
Yeah. I agree. In a way, I was quite glad of that. It wasn't all wrapped up with a bow at the end. There was still this frustration. I guess you believed that Coleman and Massey were going to continue down the road that they'd started on. So I think that gave me the hope that eventually these people would see some justice. I definitely sensed that. So I didn't feel unsatisfied. I think, you know, the thought of Sister Eileen getting cuffed and being put into the back of a police car would have been, I would have, it would have been a leap, a total leap in the world that we live in. Yeah. What a shame. <laughs> we get the Massey and Coleman coming together and they, they sort of, uh, again, finding out some key information. Massey's got hold of Father Percy's phone records and found out that he called this hotel in Dublin after 6pm, which is crucially when Aoife and Dara would have been halfway on their way to Kilkenure. Yeah, to be honest, I totally forgot. I didn't forget, but I really didn't remember that we were actually investigating a murder until about yeah. halfway, through, halfway through episode five. I was like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, we should probably start thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with all this human trafficking, it's, you know, easy to forget a murder. It's one thing after another. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they're now searching for who who took this call. And I think they find out that there were various different events happening at the hotel. And one of them, James Coyle, was at. Um, so that's the kind of dots being put together. So the other crucial thing, I guess, that we missed when we're talking about those women was that Carmel perked up when she heard the name Aoife Cassidy. You're right. And she tells Lorna that she remembers Aoife um, and she's not surprised that she came back to help because Aoife died and rose again. I know. I've put Aoife died at what? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great cliffhanger. And I think in any other show, it would be kind of laughable, but yep. it really existed in the world of the sh- that they created that you were like, sure she did. Of course she did. Yeah, I just thought this was... Genius, utter genius, the way that this all unfolded. We then see Aoife waking up and Lorna then realising and running off. That's the cliffhanger we're left on going into the final episode. So we had the sort of suggestion that Aoife wasn't dead when she was put in the wall. And I I owe you an apology, Adam, actually, because you said last record, what if she went in the wall and then found a way out of the wall? And I poo-pooed that big time. <laughs> the whole kind of how how could she have got out of the wall and then replastered it back up again was was the confusing thing. <laughs> but I really loved it because the mystery of those we talked early on about Lorna having these hallucinations and not really being able to trust what she saw. But her memory of that sleepwalking episode was that she saw Aoife Cassidy dead in the red room. Well, I don't think it was even a sleepwalking episode. I think this was a waking moment. Mm-hmm. She went into the Red Room and Ethan Cassidy was there dead. And then she bricked her up in the wall. So let's talk about the opening of episode six then. This Aoife flashback. So we see her visit to Father Percy. It's a nice shot of the car outside. And then we get a flashback within a flashback because we then see her collapsing when she was supposed to become a sister. And we learn that she had catalepsy. She's a side effect of untreated epilepsy and gives the appearance of death triggered by extreme emotional stress. And she heard children crying, dozens of them. This is what caused her to seemingly die. And that ha- that's real, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a real condition, definitely. It's quite rare, 
very handy for the plot. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that you've got this cataleptic woman and this sleepwalking woman, you know, mm-hmm. who are connected by their trauma, essentially. We've had scenes where Lorna's heard crying of children before. She confesses to the child trafficking and then he shows her all the letters and copies. They end up having a struggle with him falling down the stairs. But crucially, he's not dead. Yeah, this is what I was slightly confused about because obviously he was killed with a blunt blunt force to the head, right? So, so yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought there where I was like, oh, wait, so he's not dead by her going down the stairs, him going down the stairs. But then she goes back and she picks something off the sideboard and I didn't catch what that was. It's his car keys. Oh, okay. It's not helpful. but just quick shout out to the line from um, him of we saved these children and she said we disappeared these children I thought it was lovely I mean the justifications that they make are horrendous (sighs) Um, but yeah we then get flashbacks in Kilkenur so her meeting Clements and dropping off the note for Lorna her being there when Lorna was in the bar seeing Lorna in the bar and getting Lorna home in the cab and then she says we can talk in the morning. And it's like, oh, if only they had been able to talk in the morning. It's like Clements all over again. I'll tell you tomorrow. Tell her now. <laughs> yeah. I'd had wondered whether, because there's a scene where we see Clements leaving after she's been told that news. And I wondered whether it was going to be her who'd gone back to Father Percy and dealt the killing blow. But I think we are going to have to accept that Clements wasn't killed under suspicious circumstances and that she did sadly take her own life. Yeah, I hadn't really, to be honest, I hadn't thought about Clements until you, and her ending until you just said it. But yeah, I think you're right, Adam. Oh. Well, then we get Aoife having her cataleptic episode uh, in the Red Room, again, triggered by the memory of taking Lorna's baby and mementos that Lorna's kept. And then it's lovely, again, the sort of horror moments in this. I mean, there's one when Aoife wakes up with a blanket over her but also that turning round and seeing Lorna sleepwalking out the door. And then she collapses and then Lorna just closes the door on her. And and the physicality of Aoife when she is having her fit and then when she's still and the position that her body's found itself in is like very horror. But I don't generally like horror stuff, but this was just really, wasn't fun to watch, but it, it didn't like scare, there were no jump scares in this really. No. I thought it was a brilliant opening to the sixth episode, just revealing sort of Lorna's journey, uh, not Lorna, Aoife's journey throughout the whole thing and filling in that backstory for us was perfectly timed. We then see Aoife waking up terrified and then we cut to present time Lorna looking at the hole, very confused. She gets her phone out so she can use the torch on it and then Coleman calls. Um, So she goes off to the police station. And we're greeted with a sort of James Coyle ad isn't it with like elevator music it looked very 80s didn't it yeah this is where they're working out that they were refurbishing all of the old buildings and then Lorna recognizes St Alma's primary school he's destroying Um, the evidence of of what he did and he's calling it charity so sinister but yeah they work out that this primary school used to be a children's hospital and this is where Breeder said that the children were taken so Lorna goes along pretending to have a three-year-old daughter and doing a bit of investigating. And we get this scene with this governor. This governor's brought in who, pretending at first like he's going to help her, but ends up being, again, someone who's just gaslighting and threatening her. Oh, so gutted. 
I was so ready for her to be treated with respect and listened to by someone in authority. How naive I was. He says, you know, he starts with, what do you need? I'm at your service. I was like, oh, brilliant. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm such a, I'm so gullible in shows like this. <laughs> I just want, I just want it so much that when it, when I think it's there, I'm like, really want to believe it's true. And then he, he twists, he starts the twist, doesn't he, on, I've worked on cases like this before, and sometimes these children don't want to be found. That's the first pivot in the scene. And then he just calls her mad. Why would you think your child would even want to see you now? And then we learn that she was hospitalised, right, in a psychiatric, well, we didn't know that before. Yeah, she was put in a psychiatric hospital. She had counselling that didn't end well. And then he brings up all of the stuff with the police. And then she throws a box of kids bricks at him and he says what would your child think if if she could see you now all these stories you've been telling yourself and then basically threatens her with hospitalization you could be hospitalized without your consent which is ultimately what they did to her when she was a child you know she was taken away without her consent you know all of these women who were accused of either being mad or of you know of, of being of misbehaving and being unruly I remember seeing a play about this years ago, but the husbands could essentially declare their wives mad and have them put in these places just by talking to their, their GP or whoever. They did not have the choice at all as to whether or not they went to these places. Yeah. And it made me realise, I think that scene was really helpful. A, it raised the stakes massively. You carry on with this. You are going to be hospitalised without your consent. Like, horrendous choice for her to make. But also it made me realise these are powerful people. The fact that he can say that with conviction, I will do this. These are ve- This is a powerful strata of society that we're dealing with here. Yeah, um, there's hundreds of them involved in it and they're all complicit and looking out for each other, which again, we just sort of find out later on when we have the scene with James Coyle and his assistant. But yeah, it's, it's horrendous, horrendous stuff. And I think this is really what makes Lorna start to question whether or not she should be continuing down the path that she's been on. Next, we get a scene with Coleman and Massey, a little Backstreet Boys callback. He says he was part, Massey, this is, says he was part of it. We all were. We all knew what was going on up at that convent. And he, he says he saw the cruelty men saying everything was fine. This obviously links to Coleman's experience and the cruelty man being the person who was chasing him in his memories. But it turns out these were inspectors from the ISPCC and the nuns gaslit him too that he was told that they were evil and he needed to be silent but these were the people who could have helped him that was devastating wasn't it clanking priest ended up being a sweetheart yeah (laughs) (laughs) but Lorna gets home and sees the murder of crows again Michael turns up like a bad penny he was a bit of a red herring wasn't he Michael Nothing to do with it at all. Just a bit of uh, an unlikely romantic interest. Yeah, he was sweet, wasn't he? I mean, I still don't trust him, Adam. I don't trust anyone. I don't trust any men other than Massey and Coleman in this scenario. No, he had a bit of the white knight about him, didn't he? So he kind of wanted to sweep her off her feet and save her from everything. But she says, I have to be alone now, Michael. I was quite worried that she was thinking about killing herself to be honest at this point there was just a tiny thought that I was like shit like the the, the crows were there she's felt she's completely bereft again it was just a tiny thought but I was like oh 
I didn't think it was going to happen. It was a possibility for me at this point. Well, we next see uh, Coleman and Massey approaching James Coyle, who's just been speaking on stage. Oh, I think I've jumped a bit, haven't I? This, this happens beforehand, the first scene with them, because he's got his his alibi. Yeah, sorry, I've missed a bit here. So they 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 go and approach Coyle, and they basically reveal what they know, and they, they knew he was called Ignatius J. McMullen or whatever it was. And he says, is it a crime for one to use a different name? And then we get this killer line from Coleman, where he says that child trafficking is a crime, falsifying death certificates, that's another one. Murder, that's a biggie. <laughs> but he has an airtight alibi because he was giving us a, a talk at a sold out event so there's hundreds of people who can say that he wasn't he wasn't there when it happened gov yeah and i like the kind of the conference center setting of this it made james coyle feel well it kind of led to the assistant obviously just doing something crazy but the kind of cult-like status of of him and what he built over the years and sort of felt quite untouchable, really. Yeah, definitely. Well, Coleman's frustrated and Massey's trying to make him see the reality of the situation. There's no way he's going to be able to get Coyle's phone records. But their suspicion is that he called somebody else to finish off Father Percy. Oh, hello. <laughs> Demo. <laughs> Are you in with us? <laughs> in Demo's absence. I couldn't let that one go. Fair enough. But yeah, so Coleman goes back and he's sort of confronting Coyle again. He talks about embracing our own reckoning, which is a line that Coyle had said on stage, and then asks how much he cost, how much did his mother pay for him, tells him he's coming for him and all of his friends, and then cunningly steals his phone out of his pockets. Darren McCormack, take a bow for this scene. The hatred in his eyes when he said, how much did I cost, was so great. I loved it. Coyle doesn't really blink, does he? He doesn't really sort of go with it. He feels he feels secure and protected. But then Carmen calls the number on the phone on October the 30th. And this woman, a few seats away, answers. This was a bit of a shock, I thought. Yeah. I was like, where are we going with this? Like, what is what is happening here? I'm picking up sort of Coyle's assistant? Yeah. Yeah, one of his flock. He says to her, Leslie, you're going to be arrested. We need to know you have your silence. And I think the threat for her is real, right? She knows what happens if you are not silent. For her point of view, she's got policemen on a case, but she's also got to do what they say. Otherwise, she knows she's not going to survive. Yeah. She flipped, though. She flipped out. She runs away. I mean, nothing says a guilty conscience like running away. <laughs> Or grabbing a knife and then slicing a police officer who's chasing you. Sure, <laughs> just that as well. And then she ends up in the, the police car and he says, he made you do it, didn't he? And she doesn't dob him in. Well, again, I think she's worried more about what they will do than she is about what the police will do. But he tells her it doesn't make a difference. You killed this priest and it doesn't make a blind bit of difference because all of this is coming out whether you like it or not. And he calls them godless and self-serving. And then she spits back straight out of the cult handbook. You are the godless ones, not willing to make sacrifices. Yeah, right. And then he's like, you make, you're making the sacrifice for him. And then we get this shot of like Coyle smiling at her. I don't know. It felt, maybe I was reading this all wrong, but it felt a bit flirty. Yeah, well, Coyle's also chatting to the police, isn't he? He's talking, I, I think he's got colleagues in the upper echelons of the police force, I'm sure, you know, the Garda. So I think that adds to his 
sense of security. What did you think about Coyle as a villain? It felt, I don't know, I never really, I don't know how to put this, he never felt he was evil. But in his in the performance of him, I never really got that. I never saw the, the darkness in his eyes. No, no, I think you're right. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that they genuinely believe that they are doing God's work. And that makes them even more sinister, I think. Like he had this kind of avuncular approach, didn't he, in those early episodes? I think but fairly early on, sort of episode three, I think, I began to suspect that he wasn't what he said he was. I mean, brilliantly performed. Yeah, I just never I just never saw the evil in his eyes. But I think you're right. If he's convinced himself that he's doing the right thing, then he's never going to, that's not going to come out. If we're thinking like classic villain, it's got to be Eileen. Yeah. There's that one line where he says it's not a crime to have a, to change your name or to use a different name. And it was the kind of sort of smugness that he came out with then. I think that's probably his most evil moment. Mm, yeah, fair shout. But we then get Lorna at home. Well, we talked about this conversation that she has with Coleman, but she blows out the candle. She's at the shrine that she made. So it's kind of her accepting that she may never find her daughter. Then she hears the crows again and goes back into the wall. And this is where we finally found out what happened to poor old Aoife Cassidy. Yeah, she lost a shoe en route, didn't she? And then Lorna heads up and the immediate thing is the smell, obviously classic TV drama. And she's got... A fantastic torch, firstly. Really yeah. powerful. I'm surprised she didn't go up with one of her many candles. But uh, <laughs> she swings it around and then she lands on Aoife's dead body. Now, how did Aoife die? So she climbs up from inside the wall to the loft and it starves to death. So? Yeah. Wouldn't she be like... Lord, I'm starving. I'm going to have to come down now. Well, I just don't know how much time. I mean, we, I know we had Lorna in the house when they were going through all the death certificates and lighting all of those candles and stuff. But other than that, I don't know that she spent that much time inside her house. It, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? But like, perhaps she has sort of had another fit moment. I, I think it's more likely that she had a fit and this was like the final fit that, that she had and then she died. And I don't know like how you die from those specific fits, but I know you can die from epileptic fits. So maybe she, that's what happened. And it's quite, um, a tall, it's quite a tall house. Like she has to go up quite a few flights of stairs and I think every everything else she's done has been on the ground floor and Aoife's been up in the loft. We just don't ever find out, do we? But I guess it's not necessary information. I guess it was just an unanswered question is how she died. But I think the way that she was lying there and the body shape she was in suggested that it had been a fit. Well, Lorna says, I'm so sorry. Again, a really lovely moment. And then she finds that Aoife was holding an envelope and inside there's a photo of Agnes. Gorgeous. Lovely smiling Agnes in a scrunchie. Yeah. She's adorable. And Lorna then, again, really, really beautiful moment between Lorna and Coleman. She calls him, says, I killed her. I didn't mean to, but I did. So she confesses and accepts what she's done. And he says, we have to get your story straight. You weren't of sound mind. She's like, no, I'm not mad. I never was. I thought it was just so, so brilliant. She's found peace now. Yeah, she says, you know, she says she's alive and happy. That's all I needed to know. And I think, like you say, for Lorna, it is so important for her that, you know, she's not the mad woman in town. 
people treat her with respect and treat her what she went through acknowledge that and Coleman is so desperate isn't he there's this moment where he where he really wants her to to, to get her story straight she says no and he he tears up and it was just it's so it's so small and it's very quick but it's so beautiful when he realizes he's not going to be able to persuade her around she's made up her mind yeah and ultimately she's doing the right thing when she's been accused of all of these different things when it comes down to it she does it was an accident she didn't mean for it to happen but it happened and you know she's going to face the consequences for that and then we get this lovely scene of her dozing off in the police car you know finally getting some sleep and we hear the same poem that started this series do not stand by my grave and weep a little shot of a rainbow and that final line of i did not die yeah it was gorgeous and then it goes to black and i was like i just i, I actually said that loud i was like oh fabulous fantastic love that and then we get this epilogue now adam what are your thoughts on this yeah i i question whether we needed it or not it would have been really satisfying if it had just finished on that i did not die moment but i can understand why they did so essentially coleman's visiting her in prison She's been getting some sleep, but he looks very tired. We learn that they've got nothing on coil, but there's got to be someone out there willing to talk. And they talk about their payment in the books and this strange money being dollars to pounds. And then he reveals that he's found her, that she's been looking for Lorna too, and that she's in Boston. And not only that, Lorna can speak to her via Zoom or FaceTime or other, other video calling services are available. Yeah, I mean, I said in another episode we recorded, you know, I would have loved, I, w- I wanted a reunion, whether that was Lorna with her child or Coleman with his mother. But for me, this was not necessary. It felt quite tacked on. It honestly felt like they'd put this series in front of a focus group and the focus group had been like, oh, no, don't, what? Oh. <laughs> And then they'd called Darren McCormack and Ruth Wilson back for a day of shooting to do this ending. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer about this series. I love this series. And some people, that ending is going to be gorgeous and it's exactly what they need. But I personally didn't need it. I felt at peace with Lorna when she was at peace in the back of that police car. Yeah, I think it's a nicer resolution for Coleman. Like, as you said, he was gutted with what happened to Lorna. He gets to give her something back at the end. So for him, I think it's a nice ending. And it is, I mean, they play it so beautifully, right? Ruth Wilson, you know, almost terrified. This is the most scary thing that's happened to her in the whole show is the fact that she's (laughs) down in front of a laptop and her daughter is there on, on the screen. and We just hear her saying hi. And that's it. That's where it ends. So, yeah, I agree. It wasn't entirely necessary, but I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I just was really, I had like quite a strong reaction to that cut, I am not dead cut to black. And then I was about to stop the playing. I was like, oh, that's it. And then I was like, oh, oh no, okay. It just felt like a bit of an afterthought on a show that had structured and paced and threaded through everything so brilliantly. It's like, could we not have had Coleman's piece within the body of the show? But Again, a small gripe. And I did big shout out to I don't want to interrupt her breakfast. It's just like Lorna being vulnerable and sweet. And also she's sleeping. So that's good. It's a nice line of she's waiting for you, Lorna, 
in response to that she gave was just gorgeous. But yeah, what an incredible show. I mean, I think it dealt, we talked early on about the different styles within this show, the comedy and the horror and the drama, almost period drama in a way. I just think it wove those different elements together so brilliantly. Each one was done in a really, really clever and interesting way. This is definitely up there, I think, in my top 10 of the year. Oh, that, I wholeheartedly agree with, with that. I think it was brilliant. And it was the perfect time of year for it to come out, that kind of turning into autumn. In fact, I did watch one episode with just a singular candle burning. (laughs) Which I can highly recommend to anyone if they want to rewatch. Just have it with a singular candle. It's a vibe. But yeah, beautiful writing, beautiful performances. Very unusual, gripping. Really loved it so much. And loved these chats as well. Helped me piece a lot of things together, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been great. We should say a big thank you to everyone who's listened to these episodes. If you want to let us know whether you liked the ending or not, you can mm-hmm. do so on the social media at TVDNAPod, or you can email TVDNAPod at gmail.com. What are we going to be talking about next, Grace? I don't know. You guys are doing sex education, which I can't wait to listen to because I've just started that. Series. I just can't join for those ones, but um, can't wait to listen to your thoughts on that because that is probably the polar opposite to Woman in the Wall. <laughs> Yes, yeah, very much so. We've got Boiling Point coming out this week and The Long Shadow. Um, and those, I think, are both going to be quite interesting shows. Uh, Boiling Point, one of the most stressful experiences of my life watching that. <laughs> we'll be talking about those on a future watch list episode. And as Grace mentioned, we've got specials on sex education coming out. We've got one more Ahsoka to do as well and Gen V coming soon. And if you're still finishing Top Boy... What are you taking so long for? Finish Top Boy and then give us a listen because we also recorded special on that with Damo, who is a super fan and they were amazing. I mean, Adam, look, if you want to do some extra records of things, I am watching this little known show called Love is Blind Season 5. If you wanted to join, you'd be very welcome. Um, That will be a a hard pass, but thanks for the offer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got to try. Have you got anything to leave us on? Because like needs random sister I could murder a coffee slip diddy (laughs) lovely thanks so much Grace we'll speak soon bye